For the grace of God has appeared, bringing for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes.
grace of God that has come to us, that grace which has appeared, has a name. For that grace brings salvation, and it is a person who brings salvation. God's grace cannot be separated from the second person of the Trinity who came down from heaven, whom we celebrated yesterday. The name is literally a contraction of two Hebrew words, Yahweh saves. Yahshua. And just as Juan in Central America becomes John in North America and becomes Johan in parts of Europe, Yeshua, Yahweh saves, became Jesus in Greek and Jesus in Spanish and Jesus in English. God's grace has a name because God's grace brought salvation and it is the person of Jesus who brings us salvation. Well, since this name Jesus would have been very, very common in Jesus' lifetime. Jesus was usually referred to in a more specific way, so that we know which Jesus they were talking about. Such as, he was usually called Jesus of Nazareth, or the Nazarene. Later on, he was called Christ, the Anointed One, and it's a title that acknowledged he was the expected Messiah of Israel. Messiah being a Jewish name, Christ being the Greek translation of the same word. He was Jesus who was the Messiah, the anointed one. In the Gospels, Jesus is usually referred to as the Christ. There were so many Jesuses. When the Gospels were written, they were telling us about the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. And hence today, to this very day, many Jews refer to him as Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. After Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, the rest of the New Testament, he's usually referred to as Jesus Christ. God saves through the anointed one. God's grace has a name, and his name is Jesus, who brings salvation. Now, as I look at verse 11, some of you have already begun to ask yourselves, you think he's going to talk about this all people in verse 11? Because I believe that precision matters. Words matter. And we need to understand what the words truly mean if we're going to live the way we truly ought to live. There's a quote that has been attributed to various politicians ever since the 1980s. Yesterday, I found it attributed to Richard Nixon, to Federal Reserve Chairman Alan Greenspan, and to Robert McCloskey of the U.S. State Department. And this quote that seems to travel around Washington, D.C. is... I know you think you understand what you thought I said. But I'm not sure you realize that what you heard is not what I meant. 
make sense out of that. I'm, I'm sure you, you, you think you understand what you think I said. And, and I think that's exactly what's happening here in verse 11. You read, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. And I'm sure you think you understand what this says. But I think the Apostle Paul says, but I'm not sure you realize that what you heard is not what I meant. See, we read verse 11 in English, and we apply our understanding of the words that we read. But what if the rules of grammar were different when Paul wrote this to Titus? What if what you read is not what Paul meant? Does all people complement appeared? Or does all people complement bringing salvation? Has it appeared to all people? Or has it brought salvation to all people? How do we assign all people to the other words in the sentence? In English, we usually refer to the closest word. And since the closest word is salvation, we automatically assume that he brings salvation to all people. But in the language that Paul wrote this letter, it can be either the people or the appearing. And since it can refer to either, some of us are asking, does this mean that all people are saved? To clarify, the, the best place is to compare Scripture to Scripture, especially other Scripture that has both the same divine and human authors. If we don't understand what it says, we compare this Scripture to other Scripture that was written by both the Holy Spirit and the Apostle Paul. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, he wrote... To this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, and read that last line with me, especially of those who believe. I told you last week that 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21 says that if you believe, even if the sermon is not that good... You experience salvation. Elsewhere, Paul, the same author of Titus, writes in Galatians 3, to those who believe. He wrote in Romans 4.24, counted to us who believe. He wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16, to those who were to believe in him. This is why the B in the ABCs of the gospel is so important. If you look in the bulletins that were distributed, on the left-hand side, on the bottom, every week we print the ABCs of the gospel. We must admit that we are sinners. We must believe that Christ died and rose again for us, and we must confess Him as our Lord. Not all people are saved. But according to these verses, it is to those who believe that they experience salvation. And since God's grace has appeared in the person of Jesus, and since we believe that Jesus died and rose for our salvation, what do we do with this truth? What difference does it make in 2021, 2022, in Chase County, Kansas, 
that God's grace has appeared bringing salvation. I believe it makes a difference today because grace prompts godly living and good works right now. It prompts godly living. I, I think this is our upward response. When we consider what God has done for us, our upward response is we want to live a life that pleases Him. I've kind of separated these next two points in your outline to what do we say no and to what do we say yes. Our upward response has to do with that which we say no to. Now, I don't think I can make it any simpler than what we tell the kids in the Flint Hills Kids Club. Sin is anything we think, say, or do that displeases God. And if sin is anything that displeases, then our godly response of godliness is that anything that we think, say, or do that pleases God. See, I don't need to make a long list of the things that we do or don't do. Because Jesus summed up what pleases the Father is that godliness is when we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what godly living is. It's not a list of rules. It's simply we love Him with all that we are. And as recipients of God's amazing saving grace, we respond to Him by renouncing what displeases Him and that which reflects a love of worldly things. See, our upward affections also have an outward evidence. If our devotion is to the things that God loves, we read that God so loved the world. So if we love the things of God, then our love also needs to reflect what He loves. If He loved the world, then what should be our approach to the world? I think our outward response is that, first of all, we need to be um, self-controlled. This self-controlled is a word that we studied in the Manly Discussions group that meet on Wednesday afternoons downtown. And I explained that this word self-control is not a middle-of-the-road, wishy-washy idea. But the self-control that we are called to here in verse 12 is that we stay in our lane. That we keep heading in the direction that God wants us to head without bumping against the barriers or going off into the ditch. That we need to stay in our lane. Our outward response to other people keeps us from bouncing off to extremes. Now, I've got an illustration of this, and so now I may have to wake up a couple of people. Could I invite uh, Mr. Harshman and Mr. Um, Anderson? Yes, the, the, the elementary Harshman and Anderson <coughs> to join me here in the front of the stage. Which Harshman they're asking? I don't care which Harshman. One of the Harshmans come. Clue? Henry? Isaac? Someone want to come? 
bungee cord. And I'm going to wrap this other hand around my wrist. And can you hold that a little bit tight? Get, get, give me some snug. Get, get, get some snug on it. All right, Luke, you're going to get on this side. And I need you to give me a little bit of snug on that bungee cord. Oh my. See, the, the ability of being <laughs> self-controlled is that I stay in my lane. There may be times in my Christian walk that I feel I need to spend more time in prayer and Bible study. And so there are times when I become a little bit more heavenly, and I feel the tug over here. And so I feel a tug that I need to stay in my lane. I need to stay in the center of what God wants me to do. Now, there are other times in my life when I become acutely aware of what is happening in the world around me. And so I become more and more interested in serving other people, and then I feel the tug over here that holds me both to the, to the center. See, God's spirit and God's word keeps us in the center of our lane. It keeps us from bumping against the barrier or running off in the ditch. Now, notice that the bungee has a little bit of flexibility. That's because it is a grace that controls us. See, we, if, if these were tie-down straps, I'd be hung and I wouldn't be able to move at all. But we do have an opportunity to even go against the tub. And sometimes we're, we're drawn to our Bible study and, and, and the world, the needs of the world are tugging us, but we still keep on going and we keep on going until eventually we pull back into the middle, into the center. And that's exactly the picture. Thank you, man. You've been great. That's exactly the picture that we have of being self-controlled. Because we love God, our approach to the world around us is we stay in our lane. And we don't get distracted to one side or the other. And the bungee cords of our lives are the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. For God uses His Spirit and His Word to keep us centered. The second word that I see there about our response to the world is not only are we supposed to be self-control, but we are to live upright. This word upright is actually a legal term because we have tasted God's grace and his salvation. We say yes to the things that are consistent with his law. Now, watching sports, either from recreation league to professional, can really test one's um, sanctification. Watching sports can test one's spiritual maturity. Because sports are officiated by humans. And sometimes one human doesn't see things the same way another human sees them. But a good official is needed to make sure that the game is played according to the agreed-to rules. Now, whether it is accidental or it is dirty, the official is not there to determine the outcome. He is there to ensure to the best of his or her ability that the rules of the game are followed. This is what it means to be upright. 
not that we do something by accident, not we do something to be dirty, but if we love God, our engagement with other people is to follow the rules of the game. I, I heard a new chant from our student section during this year's football season. A few times, the ref would blow a whistle, he would motion his hands, and if it was against the other team, our students would chant, you can't do that. You can't do that. And a player who is upright rarely hears that chant. A person who is upright rarely pays a fine or experiences a con conflict in their relationships. We are to be self-controlled to stay in our lane. We are to be upright. In other words, to follow the rules. And then it also tells us thirdly that we are to live godly. Now, godly is not a word that is unique to Christianity or to Judaism. This word of godliness appears in other religions. In other religious texts that describe anyone who honors their God by doing what that God commands. This isn't necessary that you're a good Christian, it's just that you do what your God expects. And so we stay in our lane, we follow the rules of the game, and we do what our God expects of us. When we receive God's grace, and his salvation, we receive the indwelling spirit of God who compels us to do what pleases God. The writer of Hebrews put it this way, May he equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And then verse 14 goes on to tell us that not only do we have an upward response, not only do we have an outward response, but verse 14 says we're playing for a new team. This phrase, for his own possession, is just one word in Paul's language. And, and it's difficult to convey the idea of, of for his own possession in English. Because we bristle against the very idea of being possessed by another. After all, we're free men. We're Americans. And the atrocities of chattel slavery have left a bitter taste in our minds so that we push back against the mere mention of belonging to someone else. This is why many brides remove to obey from the traditional wedding vows. But this idea of being a people of his possession is more than just who you work for as in your employment. It's an identity. It's a, I, I belong to a community and my decisions influence other people. As a virus is mutating and spreading, School districts and sports leagues are adjusting how to respond to learning and to playing. But one thing is clearly evident. 
school has a bearing on the whole school experience. And what players do off the field has bearing on if they're allowed to participate in the game. See, what this is telling us is that we belong to him, and so all of our decisions will influence other people. We belong to him, our identity is to him, and so we need to do what is best for his team and the world around us. Verse 14 says, since we belong to God's team, we now live zealous for good works. So the goals of the team may proceed. I don't live for myself, but I live for him. So we know how God's grace appeared to us in the person of Jesus. We know that right now, that means we say no to what displeases God, and yes to what he approves. But then the text goes on to show the eventual outcome of his saving grace. The eventual outcome is that there will be the appearing of Jesus, which will be glorious, as we see in verse 13. There is a glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, when I think about the word hope, this talks about a blessed hope. The word hope, in its, um, in its root, is the whole idea of expectation. What do you expect to be the outcome? What do you hope for? We started Advent by setting an expectation for an even better Christmas. We set an expectation that we would experience something even better than what we imagined. Because so many of us are fatigued, we're worn down, and we are fed up with this pandemic and many of the responses to it. And so we needed to recalibrate our expectations. Last week, I mentioned that I was busting out this year. I was going to celebrate seven days of Anne, to which some of you reminded me, no, she deserves ten days this year. <laughs> and, and my response on Facebook to some of you who, who made that comment is that I try to under-promise and over-deliver. And this week, the UPS driver will probably resent my attempt to over-deliver. But the expectation that God has set for us is not an over-promise. The expectation that God has given to us is a blessed hope. Now, this word blessed is not something that we use often, uh, maybe around Thanksgiving, someone says the blessing, or we share in the Lord's Supper, and after he blessed the bread, what is a blessed expectation? Well, in my dictionary of language, this word blessed actually pertains to being fortunate, or per it pertains to being happy because of circumstances. The dominant meaning of the word is that our hope will make us happy because there will be a change of our circumstances. We endure now, we serve now, even when it's difficult. Even when it goes against our nature, 
we choose an upward expression and an outward expression of self-sacrifice because we anticipate a change in circumstance that will make us happy. His appearing promises us the blessed hope of his returning. And his return will be one of glory. This word glory carries the idea of brilliance or of majesty. The coming glory is reminiscent of the pillar that led the Israelites from Egypt to Jericho. It was a brilliance that lasted for days on the face of Moses after he was in the tabernacle. It was a majesty because when the cloud moved, the people followed. It was brilliant and it was majestic and royal. Majesty is communicated again in a way that can be missed in English. Because when we look at this about the appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, some of us begin to think plural. We see and, our great God and Savior, and we begin to think plural. But maybe instead of thinking plural, we need to be thinking of collectively of both. Because this is not talking about the appearing of God the Father as the great God and as Jesus as the Savior. This should be understood as we look forward to the coming when Jesus, who is both the great God and our Savior, will appear. It will be brilliant. It will be majestic. Because one Jesus is coming as the great God. The God who reached down to save you and me. This great God who is coming for us is the one who will appear in the eastern sky. He will make his route to Jerusalem where he will sit on the throne of David for a millennium. Then a glorious new heaven and new earth will descend and it will be glory. 